March 7th, 1965 was a day that in American history books would later be referred to as Bloody Sunday. The Civil Rights Act of 64 had been signed into law for nearly an entire year by that point. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, which banned racial segregation in public businesses and public places and banned the discrimination against any persons on the basis of race, nationality, or ethnic background. By law, you could not deny someone service because of the color of their skin. But just because the Civil Rights Act of 64 had been signed into law, it didn't mean that governors and soldiers upheld it. And that's exactly what we saw on March 7th, 1965, a day called Bloody Sunday. The winter of 65, you could still see that Jim Crow laws had a lethal stranglehold on the South, notably in in one county, Dallas County, Alabama. Black folks made up well over the majority of the citizens there, and yet there was no representation in local law enforcement or government positions. And why was that? Well, they needed to be able to vote. They needed to be able to vote locally in order for them to be represented locally. And when they would try to exercise their right to vote, black folks were met with serious opposition. When civil rights groups would try and Register black voters. It even got violent. Not from them, but in the opposing groups that stood against them. They were repeatedly denied. Notably in one city in Dallas County, Alabama. The city of Selma. And so the plan was that civil rights leaders would march with about 600-some peaceful demonstrators, and they were going to take their cause right to the governor himself, George Wallace. They were going to march the 54 miles from Selma, Alabama, all the way to the capital, Montgomery, That was the plan. That was the plan on March 7th, 1965, the day called Bloody Sunday. Although it hadn't been called Bloody Sunday yet. Those 600-some demonstrators, they got as far as the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then when they reached the crest of the bridge, then they saw what awaited them on the other side. A line of state troopers stretching from one side of the street to the other, 
all of them wearing white helmets, equipped with gas masks and waving and wielding nightsticks. Behind them was a flank of deputies, sheriff deputies. Some of them were on foot. The rest of them were on horseback. The marchers got to the edge of the bridge and they stopped. And then came the threats. This is an unlawful assembly. Turn back now. Go back home. Go back to your churches. The marchers just stood there. The troopers put on their gas masks. And they began to march. They reached the demonstrators and then they began to shove. And then suddenly something snapped. And all these troopers just started to rush them, knocking some over to the ground and trampling others. Those who fell over, either being shoved or pushed or trampled, were then repeatedly beaten again and again and again with nightsticks. And then you could hear the cries and the screaming. And then came the tear gas. And then came the sheriff deputies riding horses, swinging those nightsticks as they rode, clobbering men, women, and children. Who were screaming for their lives, or gasping for breath. Of the 600-some marchers who peacefully marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, 17 of them were hospitalized for serious, serious injuries. Another 50 for lesser injuries, but injuries nonetheless. There were film crews there that day, catching the whole thing on camera. Tens of millions of people watched This horrendous, gut-wrenching footage of Bloody Sunday. You know what was interesting about all of that and all this carnage? Not a single one of the demonstrators fought back. Not a single one raised their hand in opposition or aggression. They, They just took it. They, they just took it. It's sickening to see such criminal abuse of power, such brutality exercised by those called to uphold justice. The sad reality is we don't have to look in history books back to 1965, to see such criminal abuse of power, such brutality, because we see it in our lives now, don't we? We see it in the section of Scripture that we just heard a moment ago. We see Roman soldiers taking Jesus into the praetorium. They expose his back and they bind him to this low stone pillar. And there with his back exposed, 
they scourge him. They whip him. This was no dainty whip. The whip they used was referred to as a flagrum, which is comprised of three leather cords. And at the ends of these leather cords were bits of lead and sheep bone. This was an instrument that two Roman soldiers would take turns with whipping a singular person. And this wouldn't just break or bruise the skin. This was an instrument of punishment that if used properly, it could reduce someone's back to bloody ribbons. That wasn't enough. No, such brutal treatment of Jesus in the praetorium, that wasn't enough. They needed to do more. See, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he had a little bit of an agenda, didn't he? We heard it in that section of Mark just a moment ago, too. In a failed attempt to placate and appease this ravenous crowd, he doesn't just have Jesus flogged. He has Jesus mocked. Jesus claimed to be a king. All right. We're going to parade him around as a king. So Pilate orchestrates this, this farcical charade. This ridiculous presentation. Hands him over to his soldiers and Well, if he's a king, he needs a robe. So they throw this this royal-looking robe, this purple robe on Jesus' bloodied back. But any king needs a, a crown, right? What king would be a king without a crown? So they fashion this crown of thorns and they they shove it on his head. But what king would be a king without a scepter? So they throw a staff in his right hand. Begin to worship him and revere him mockingly. Hail, King of the Jews! They strike him on the head again and again and again. And they spit on his face. Can you imagine it? Can you see it? The blood mixing with their saliva. And Pilate hands Jesus over to those Roman soldiers to have him crucified. They make Jesus carry his own cross. They lead him outside the city. And they had him killed. But not before ridiculing him first. I've seen pictures of that. Artistic renderings or imaginations of what that might have looked like. And every time I see the soldiers mocking Jesus, and maybe you've seen this picture before too, there only seem to be maybe about five or six soldiers. You ever seen that picture before? thing is, though, is that the Greek word that Matthew uses doesn't describe a, a whole company of five or six, but it could have been as many as 600 men. That's how many people marched over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That's a lot of people. That's complete overkill. Complete, total 
ridicule of the righteous Son of God. And as those soldiers watch the dying, bleeding Son of God hang on a cross, they're casting dice, gambling for his clothing. Talk about brutality. Such a sight is horrendous to imagine, isn't it? It's sickening to see such criminal abuse of power. Such brutality exercised by those called to uphold justice. But such criminal abuse of power is such Brutality inflicted against the blameless Son of God. It shouldn't just sicken us, brothers and sisters in Christ. It does something else, doesn't it? It saddens us. It saddens us. And it should. It should sadden us because such brutal treatment of the blameless Son of God was necessary. Jesus wasn't some victim who died as an accidental casualty of Roman tyranny. Nor did he die merely because he was unpopular with the religious elite of the day. No, What does the Bible say? The Bible says that God sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for us. God the Father sent His Son to die. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Jesus had to die. That Jesus was slandered, spat upon, scourged, and slain upon a tree. That rightfully saddens me. Because all that happened because of me. My sins before a holy, righteous God demanded atonement. The wages of our sin against a perfect, blameless, righteous, holy, justice-demanding God is death. That is why Jesus laid down His life. To suffer and sacrifice Himself on a cross. That is why Jesus was led like a silent lamb to His shearers. That is why Jesus willingly was led like a lamb to the slaughter. What does the Bible tell us? Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Jesus had to die because of us. Our abusive texts, our abusive Facebook posts, our abusive gossip and slanderous words that utterly tear people down or rip them to shreds. Our abusive actions towards our 
friends, our neighbors, our family, maybe even the people here at this church. The same sinful hands of brutality that struck Jesus' face and nailed him to a tree are not foreign to me. They're not foreign to you either. Jesus died for our abusive hearts. Those hands that we see, those same sinful hands that brutally struck Jesus' face and nailed Him to a cross, they're not foreign to me because they are my hands. They are your hands. And what do we see? We see our Savior just taking it. He just takes it. Why? Why does the silent Son of God just stand there and endure the brutal hands of these Roman soldiers? Why does he silently submit to such awful contempt and scorn? Why, the, why does he submit to all this ridiculous vulgarity? The mocking? Why the whipping? Why the crown of thorns? Why the cross? Because it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and to make his life a guilt offering for the sins of the entire world. The punishment that brought us peace forever with God was placed on Jesus so that by his wounds, we, brothers and sisters in Christ, we would be healed, reconciled, and restored to God. Jesus didn't endure all of that simply because of our sins. No, we would be theologically underselling who our Savior is. He didn't just do that because of our sins. He did all of that because of His amazing, undying, unrelenting love for you. For you. God would die for those who wanted to kill Him. God would love those who hated Him. When our sinful world sought to strip Jesus of His glory and clothe Him in shame, Jesus, out of His undying love for us, came to strip us of our shame and clothe us with His glory. And how would He do that? Well, that meant that He had to clothe himself in our shame first. So that we would be the righteousness of God. Those are the hands of love. Are they not brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus silently endured the brutal hands of governors and soldiers on that bloody Friday because of his boundless love for you. His boundless love for you speaks far greater volumes 
God the Son would endure the holy justice of God the Father all to win for you forgiveness of sins, new life, and salvation. All because of his amazing grace and compassion for you. Yes, our Savior, he died for the, the brutal hands on Bloody Sunday. He died for the brutal, sinful Roman hands on Bloody Friday. He died for us, too. He died for our brutal hands because of his love for us. To rescue our abusive world from sin, from suffering and death, our loving, gracious Savior, he would submit to such brutal treatment. He would suffer and then he would die. And that same Jesus, your God and mine, our creator, he would be buried too and with him your sins. But he didn't stay buried. Your sins did. Your Savior did not. Your sins stayed dead, nailed to the cross and buried with Christ in his death. But your Savior did not. He rose from the dead and now extends his nail-pierced, compassionate hands to you. In word and sacrament, it says, peace be with you. These are the hands of love that died for you, that shed blood for you, that were pierced for you, that reached out in love to rescue you. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. You, brothers and sisters in Christ, you rest redeemed now today, tomorrow, and forever in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. The same hands that will carry you through this life and bring you safely home to be with him in heaven. Amen.